Well, good morning. I, I, listen, I think all of us have had times in our lives where you had to wait for something that was very significant or maybe something that was causing you a lot of anxiety or nerves. And so you really couldn't do anything until this thing passed. So maybe an exam or a presentation or some life altering news and you're coming to like, you know, you're going to hear about it soon. And so you're like, you don't know what to do. This happened recently. Uh, Christine and I uh, put an offer on a house and you know, in this market, it's crazy. And so you know, we've been looking for a while, um, even before COVID and then COVID happened, we weren't quite sure. And so we put an offer on the house. And if you know anything about you know, how real estate is going now, it's like, you got a day. Like, that's all you get. You look at it once, and you've got a day. And so we looked at it. We put our offer on. And then, the, like, the realtor lady person from, you know, that was selling the house was saying that they were going to wait four days. I was like, that's not fair. We were prepared. You don't get to wait four days. Uh, on top of that, it was some weird, like, relocation thing where they weren't asking for any due diligence, which helped us out, you know, because we don't have, like, $500,000 or just here you go, you know, for a house. And so we were excited about it. And I was like, four days, this is dumb, but whatever. And so over the weekend, you know, I wasn't thinking much about it. You know, I was like, this would be cool, but I'm not trying to get my hopes up. And they said they let us know around Monday at noon. And so I wake up Monday morning and it hit me. I'm like, this stinks. Are we going to get this house? I mean, because like, this is a life altering decision. I was thinking about like, depending on where we end up living, it's going to change the school that our kids go to or the friends that they grow up in their neighborhood. I mean, everything is dependent on this. And so the whole day, the whole morning, I'm like trying to do some stuff. And I'm just like, I can't focus because I'm trying to figure out what's going to happen with this house, right? And, and today, as we continue through the book of Ruth, we're going to see a very uh, climatic scene where we are trying to see, hey, what is going to happen? Uh, now, Ken, Ruth's situation is probably a little bit more different than mine. In fact, that hers is actually life-altering. Uh, mine is life-altering, but not like, uh, am I going to, you know, have bad things happen to me or my existence, you know, dependent on it isn't quite the same. Uh, but today we're going to be in Ruth chapter 3. So if you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and turn there. If not, there's a black one around you. And if you do not own a Bible, you can take one of those black ones home. It is our gift to you. I'm going to do a 60-second recap, and that's it. Uh, Ruth is four chapters. It's a story uh, really meant to be read together. And so if you haven't been with us, you might miss some things, but here's where we are. It starts with Naomi and her husband Elimelech. Uh, they are in Bethlehem, which is a town in Israel. Uh, Israel is going through a famine. It's the time of the judges where Israel is not being faithful. And so instead of asking for God's grace and repenting, they decide to move to Moab, which is a neighboring territory, which was a, a bitter enemy of Israel. They go there. Uh, they have two sons, and Naomi's husband ends up passing away. Her sons uh, marry Moabite women. Uh, her sons pass away, and so she's left with two daughters-in-law. She's a widow. She's a foreign and she's poor. Uh, word about 10 years after living there, word comes that there is uh, food or there is a harvest coming back to Israel. And so she decides to go back to Bethlehem. Uh, one of her daughters-in-law and decides to stay with her family in Moab. But another daughter-in-law, Ruth, says, I'm going to commit myself to you. I'm going to care. I'm going to be with you. I'm not going to let you stay alone. And so Ruth leaves uh, her, her country she becomes a widow and a foreigner in Israel. In an amazing act of courage, she says, I'm going to be with you. Naomi comes back to Bethlehem. Everyone's excited to see her. And what did she say? Don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. She says, call me bitter, Amara, which means bitter, because God has dealt bitterly with me. She has lost everything. And she's bitter and she's angry. And then Ruth comes. She ends up uh, uh, going to work in a field. It happens to, as, as things kind of turned out, we're supposed to see the grace of God through the story. Uh, he leads Ruth to a man named Boaz. She is working in his field. Uh, Boaz is a man of noble character. And we find he's also a relative, which is significant because in that time period, your family took care of one another. And so at the end of chapter two, there's hope that Boaz has taken care of them economically. He has allowed uh, Ruth to work and to glean from his field. He's 
even given her above and beyond even more grain in response to her faithfulness to Naomi. And so we're encouraged that for the next couple of months at least, Naomi gets, or Ruth gets to work this field. They, they at least have food to eat. But the question we're after is, is Ruth and Naomi going to have security? Right? Is Ruth possibly going to have marriage where she can have kids, where she can uh, be cared for in her old age? We don't just care about the, the short term. We want to know what's going to happen in the long term. And so long story short, that's where we left up. We'll pick up the story, chapter 3, starting in verse 1. We'll see what happens next. Here's what it says. Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her. So remember, Ruth is the Moabite, and Naomi is her mother-in-law. My daughter, shouldn't I find rest for you so that you will be taken care of? Now, again, Naomi here is talking. Clearly, she's talking about marriage. Uh, she wants security and rest for Ruth. She wants uh, not just for her to be okay for the next couple of months, but for the rest of her life. And really, Naomi is taking it upon herself that say, hey, Ruth gave up everything to come with me. It has become my duty to care for Ruth's future. And so we don't get an answer from Ruth here. She doesn't say anything back to her, but the rhetorical question would have certainly been answered affirmatively. Of course she wants rest and, rest and security and protection and care. And so here's what uh, Naomi says in verse 2. She says, Now isn't Boaz, the field that Ruth's been working in, our relative? Haven't you been working with his female servants? This evening he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. So again, we talked a little bit about this last week, but relative is significance because a Boaz can become what, we, what is known as a kinsman redeemer. Uh, as we said last week, this is the idea of a, what's called a Leverite marriage where you would have a, a childless widow uh, who would often, if her husband passed away, would often marry a brother-in-law uh, to care for her. Uh, to care for her, for, for children, for protection, for land and security, and any possessions that are in the family can stay with her and the family, even legal protection. There's a, a lot of things. And again, being a widow is a terrible and horrible thing. And so there was this, this idea that you would have a kinsman redeemer, you would have a family member marry this child, this widow, so that she would not be left alone. And as we have seen so far, uh, Boaz, has been, uh, Boaz, Boaz, Boaz has been significantly kind to Ruth. Right, significantly kind to Ruth. And so Naomi is hopeful that perhaps he might fulfill this role as a kinsman redeemer. Now, we know legally he doesn't have to do this. He's not, uh, one, of, he's, he's not one of Ruth's whose deceased husband is not a brother of his. We're not sure you know, how far down the family line or how connected they are, but they're relatives in some kind, but he's not legally obligated to be her redeemer. But because he has been so kind, Naomi wonders maybe he might step up and fulfill this role. And so what's happening is he is out winnowing barley. Uh, anybody ever winnowed barley? Uh, thank, yeah, that's right. You haven't. Uh, so you're like, what does this mean? So real quick, just to give you some cultural context. Uh, winnowing barley would basically, it's the process of, of, of getting the grain uh, from, from the harvest. And so basically, there's, there's a number of steps in this process. And you, would, you might be f familiar with like a chaff in the grain. And so they would beat it. They would throw it up in the air if there's a, a breeze. Basically, what would they would do is that they would take all of their harvest and they would try to take the chaff that you can't eat and they would separate it, separate it from the grain. And so there's a number of steps after harvest season, which lasts about two months, you would have all of your grain, and then you would begin to winnow it so that you can separate the grain from the chaff, so you can sell the grain, you can eat the grain, that you can live off of it. And so Boaz uh, is, is at night sleeping at his grain pile. This is what they would, they, him and his workers would do. Uh, you would, when you have all of your grain together uh, during the threshing season, you would sleep out with your grain so that people wouldn't come in the middle of the night 
and steal it. And so they would be sleeping probably in all different parts of the field to make sure nobody is taking these goods. And Naomi knows this, and so she has this plan for Ruth to perhaps meet him there tonight when he is threshing the barley. And so here's, what she, here's her uh, idea, verse 3. She tells Ruth, wash, put on perfumed oil, and wear your best clothes. Go down to the threshing floor, but don't let the man know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, notice the place where he is lying. Go in and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will explain to you what to do. So Ruth said to her, I will do everything that you say. Now, this part is particularly difficult. Uh, there's a lot of debate, especially in the Hebrew, about what's actually going on here and what's Naomi's intent. And so really quickly, let me just explain what's happening, and then we'll get to what really is important. Um, again, the Hebrew makes this a little ambiguous. And so here's what's happening. Naomi tells Ruth, uh, to wash, put on perfume, and to wear her best clothes. Now, even the translation of best clothes is debatable. Uh, she could be saying wear something really nice. Uh, she also could be saying uh, Ruth, per perhaps up until this point, had been wearing clothes or having something on her that symbolized that she was a widow. And so what, what Naomi could be telling to Ruth to do is to not dress like that anymore, to not dress like a widow in grief, but dress like someone who is available to marriage. And so whether it really is wear the best thing you have or just wear something that signifies, hey, I'm available, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm seeking marriage, I'm no longer grieving my own, my diseased husband. We're not exactly sure what she's saying there, but she has told her to look different in some way. And she says, go out to meet Boaz. Now again, Boaz would have been on the threshing floor. What makes this difficult as well is because prostitutes would often during the threshing season uh, go to you know, the threshing floor out in the field because men would be there and make themselves available to them. And so the question is, is she suggesting this to Ruth, to kind of it's kind of a suggestive behavior? Uh, we also know that when it says uncover his limbs or, you know, reveal his feet, that could also be interpreted a couple of ways. Uh, it could be interpreted sexually, like sexually suggestive or promiscuous, um, but it also could be understood as someone who is just saying, hey, I am dependent on you. Someone who is saying, hey, I need your help. And so that could be taken a couple of different ways. And so there's a lot of debate on, on what kind of Naomi's or Ruth's posture during what is going on here. Um, I, I would, here's, here's the best way that I could come up with it. To me, I would lean on the, on the side of while this could be um, sexual in nature, uh, we hear, here's what we do know. That up, up until this point, at least, Ruth and Naomi have shown no sexual interest. Right, their, their goal, especially Naomi's goal, is for Ruth to be cared for and for Ruth to have protection. Uh, also, again, their cultural context is so different than ours. Uh, Ruth herself is probably not thinking about sex or a boyfriend or romance. You know, in our culture today, it's like you see someone that you think is cute and hopefully they think is cute and like you're going to get together no matter what anybody else says. It's like you two against the world, right? In this culture, even today in a lot of cultures and throughout most of human history, you didn't just do that. I mean, it was a family affair. People spoke into it. And so it wasn't like this individualistic thing of like, well, I'm going to try to get this man or get this woman to be with me. Uh, we, also are to, we also see here that Ruth isn't told to be uh, overly suggestive to Boaz. She's not told to initiate anything after he wakes up and sees her. She is just told to go present herself uh, and then allow him see what he wants to do or see what he says. And so, again, in my opinion, it doesn't seem to be this kind of sexual thing, but rather this thing where she's trying to present herself to Boaz and do something that is revolutionary, and that is propose marriage to him. It's really to ask him to be his 
be her redeemer. And so all that to say, here's really what's the focus of these verses, that this is a massive gamble for Ruth. What she is doing here is a big deal, right? Because for one thing, if Boaz sees this as a sort of sexual advance, we know that he is a man of noble character, so he might become angry with her. Uh, even if not, the fact that she is proposing uh, to, to Boaz is this radical idea. I mean, she could lose everything, right? She's the younger woman proposing to the older man. Uh, she is the worker proposing to the owner of the field. She is the foreigner proposing, proposing to the native. There is nothing about this that is easy. I mean, in fact, the reality situation is her chances of success, like generally speaking, are not great. And again, remember that, that Boaz has cared for Ruth and Naomi. He has given them grain. He has protected her from physical and sexual abuse. I mean, this is a big deal that she could lose everything, right? And I don't know if you've been in a situation like that, maybe not so, so uh, life-altering, but still, where you did something where the odds probably were not great, right? But you went for it anyway. Now, sometimes we do this for, for wise or good reasons. Sometimes maybe not wise reasons and you're just going for it. But there are times in our lives, right, where all of us go for something, even if we're not sure how it's going to turn out. Uh, uh, last week, I shared with you the, my proposal story to Christina. Uh, not very romantic, but I gave you the Cliff Notes versions, which I think was pretty awesome. Um, so today, here's what I, I want to share what led up to this, something that probably didn't go so well. Again, as many as you know, uh, Christina dumped me twice. And so the second time, the first time she broke up with me, you know, we were in college, we were all the same friends, we hung out together, that's fine. Second time she broke up with me, I was like, I'm not doing this again. So I didn't speak to her, I didn't hang out with her, when our friends were together, I wouldn't go there. Um, the whole time, I'm like, this is dumb, we shouldn't be broken up anyway, it was too difficult. And so I had this idea, a couple months after being broken up the second time, I was like, listen, I'm just going to talk to her, I'm just going to tell her, if you were here last week, I was still writing in that journal, right, you know, okay, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> And so I was like, this is the last time I'm going to write. And I was like, I'm just going to tell her I feel and tell her that, you know, I think we should be together. And if she says, no, we're not doing this, then I'm going to be done. I'm going to move on. It is what it is, whatever. So I text her. Uh, and I, it was uh, Thursday. And I was like, Thursday night after this campus thing that we were involved with, I was like, hey, can I talk to you? And so she says, yes. And so after the thing, we go in the parking lot. And I don't remember exactly all that I said. But I asked her, I said, hey, we should, would you, how do you feel about praying about getting back together? Now, at this point, you know, there's, there's, there's something about, hey, even if you do something and it may not work out, like it's nice to have hope that things could work out, right? And so this was it for me, right? I don't think, I mean, she's dumped me twice. We haven't talked in three months, really. And so this probably isn't going to go well, but I'm going to do it. Uh, she says yes, surprisingly. Uh, she says yes, and we text, and obviously we, we got back together. It was interesting. Two things that are interesting about this, just as a side note, because I know you're really interested in this. Uh, <laughs> number one, she told me after we got back together a little bit later that she thought that I was reaching out to her to, to let her know or to ask if she was okay with me asking another girl out. And I was like, listen, you dumped me twice. If I wanted to ask someone out, I would not have gotten your opinion or your permission. Like, I just would have done it. And then, like, I, like two weeks ago, I was telling her I was going to share this story. And so I asked her. I was like, she, obviously, she said, she said yes. So she wanted to get back together. I said, what, did you, what would you would have done if I had never said anything? She said, well, I probably, probably never would have dated again. I was like, but you, like, liked me. She's like, yeah, but, like, you're the guy. And I was like, but you dumped me. Not once, but twice. You could have said any time over the three months time span, you know what? I made a mistake. Right? You could have done that. And that could have been fixed everything a lot faster. And I was just like, why? You never would have said anything. Anyway, doesn't matter. Luckily, her Boaz rescued her. I'm just kidding. She's in kids, so she can't, she can't, she's not here right now. 
But no, why am I talking about me? I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about Ruth, right? Anyway, I didn't think this was going to go well, right? And this is where Ruth is. She has no idea how it's going to go. And if things go poorly, this could have devastating effects on an already difficult life that her and Naomi are living. And so here's how it goes down. Well, before that, so I want to make this point before we continue reading. All I have to say, Ruth does not know how this is going to work, but she has to trust. And it's an important reminder to us as we read all throughout Scripture this theme that we often see, that faithfulness requires trust. At the end of the day, if we want to be faithful, we do actually have to trust. We can't always know how things are going to work out. And I don't know if you have ever been in situations like this. This has happened to me often with New City and a lot of other things where I've been like, God, as long as I know, like if you can tell me that things are going to work out, I'll do whatever you ask me to do. I don't mind if things are hard or difficult or awkward for a while, but if I just know that things are going to work, then I'll do it, right? And the reality of the situation is that is not trust, right? That's not trust. That's me knowing, hey, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to get what I want. And I wonder, as we read stories like Ruth and we see kind of cool things happen or other stories in the Bible where God moves in really big ways, I wonder if in our own lives uh, how many times you and I miss seeing God move and wonder why we don't see him do some cool things when we don't even do what he asks us to do, right? Ruth's having to do something really difficult here. There's a lot of great stories in scripture where people have to do something really difficult. Where in the moment, I mean, we're reading the story so we kind of know how it's going to go, but in the moment, they have no idea how it's going to go and they have to trust. And so for whatever that's worth, whatever you're walking through right now, whatever you're dealing with in your season of life, the question is, what does it look like for you to actually trust, not knowing how things are going to go to work out? Because this is what, where Ruth finds herself. And so let's see what happens next. Verse 6, chapter 3, here's what it says. And so she, talking about Ruth, went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law had charged her to do. After Boaz ate, drank, and was in good spirits, he went to lie down at the end of the pile of barley. And she came secretly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. At midnight, Boaz was startled, turned over, and there lying at his feet was a woman. So he asked her, who are you? I am Ruth, your servant, she replied. Take me under your wing, for you are a family redeemer. So Ruth here does everything that Naomi asked her to do. Boaz wakes up. Again, it's dark. He can't see anything. He doesn't know who it is. He might assume someone's trying to steal some of his grain. He's probably a little startled, and he asks who is there. Uh, Ruth answers, and so he finds out that it is Ruth, and she says something that is strange to modern readers, but it would have been perfectly clear to Boaz in his context. He's essentially, at, Ruth is asking Boaz to marry her, to take responsibility for her. In fact, to spread your wings over was a euphemism for marriage. She is asking him, even as it says in verse 9, to be her redeemer, right? And so Ruth here displays incredible courage, absolutely incredible courage. And immediately when he wakes up, he kind of, she tells him exactly what is, why she is there. Now, in this context, again, we should be in awe of what she's saying. And of course, we're not there, so we don't know how exactly this went down. But I imagine there has to be this part of Ruth where like she's anxious and she's worried and she knows what she's going to say and she's rehearsed it. But then the time comes where she actually has to say it, right? And it's one thing to think about it, and there's nothing to do it. And, I, and I, I like to imagine that, that part of her, as she is saying these words, is like, I cannot believe I'm saying this, right? Because if this doesn't go well, I could lose everything. And so she says it, and we'll see how it goes. But I don't know if you've ever been in a situation in your life where you said something, 
And as you're saying it, you're like, I can't believe I just said that. Now, it might have been something that needed to be said, and that might have been something that was wise and that was good, but it could have been difficult. And you're like, I can't believe I just said that. I, I have to imagine that she's here. I know this happened to me uh, when I was 17 years old. I, uh, when I got my license, my dad kind of put the fear of God in me about speeding and how if I ever got a ticket, I'd have to walk or ride a bike. And, you know, in high school, you don't want to do that. And so I have, to this day, I have a pristine driving record, no tickets, no accidents, except for one blemish. That happened when I was 17 years old. I was in a neighborhood, and I was driving. It was one of those three-way stops that shouldn't be a three-way stop. It should just be one stop sign, and then everyone else just goes, and that one stop sign, people have to wait. And uh, no one, I mean, there's a neighborhood, no one's ever there. And so it was one of these times where I was driving through there, and I didn't completely stop, which all of us have done at least 100 times. See, Marty, I'm, see, I'm still not over this, right? And uh, a cop was waiting for people not to do that. And so he pulls me over, and he gives me a ticket for not completely stopping at the stop sign. Even as I'm sitting there, I'm like, you only give me this ticket because I'm 17. Like, if I was an adult, you would not be giving me this ticket. So I was, like, mad. Like, who gets a ticket for this? Everybody's done it. I'm not talking to a single person that's got a ticket for this. Anyway, so my dad and I go to the, go to the courthouse on my, you know, assigned date, and we were going to ask for a prayer for judgment, which essentially means, you know, you know, there's a lapse of judgment. It doesn't get held against you. You don't get insurance points for it. It's fine. Just, like, don't do it again. And so I, we get to the courthouse that morning, and I'm looking at, like, there was, like, two or 300 uh, there was like pages of people who were there for like traffic violations and various things. And so you have to find your name and where to go. I don't know if it's still like this. Um, and so I, ran, I read the whole list. Not a single person there was, was, was ticketed for, not, for failure to stop at a stop sign. So again, I'm like, why am I here? This should not be a thing. So we go in, and then it's my, it's, you know, we're in the courtroom, and the judge says, you know, he calls up me, Mr. Dotson. So my dad and I walk up, and the judge says, Mr. Dotson, I see that you're here for running a stop sign. <laughs> and he, as he says it, I, I immediately respond. And I don't, to give you context, like, I was a kid. Like, our kids, got, we got in trouble as our kids. My parents were pretty strict. Like, we were very respectful for adults. Like, yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, Mr. Last Name or Mrs. Last Name. And we just didn't, you know, we didn't get, we just were very respectful. So this is like, anyway, he says, you're here for running stop sign. And I immediately respond by saying, no, sir, I just didn't completely stop. I'm like, why? Why am I saying this? And I'm just like, I blew it. Like, I am, I just, <laughs> I couldn't believe it. Now, it was true, and it needed to be said. But, and he responds by saying, I, oh, it was great. He said, okay, Mr. Dotson, well, I'll give you a prayer for judgment. So I didn't even have to ask. I was like, that's right, you will. I'm just kidding. But, like, I said it, and it was true, but, like, you know, and I have to imagine here, Ruth is like, I can't believe I just said that, right? I can't believe that I just said that. So she says that, right, and everything's hanging in the balance, and so here's how Boaz responds after this quick break. No, I'm just kidding. That's good. <laughs> Verse 10. <clears throat> then he said, may the Lord bless you, my daughter. You have shown more kindness now than before. He's talking about how he had cared, she had cared for Naomi. Because you have not pursued younger men, whether rich or poor. Now, don't be afraid, my daughter. I will do for you whatever you say, since all the people in my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Yes, it is true that I am a family redeemer, but there is a redeemer closer than I am. Stay here tonight and in the morning. If he wants to redeem you, that's good. Let him redeem you. Now, if he doesn't want to redeem you, as the Lord lives, I will. Now lie down until morning. 
So what happens here, Boaz first responds with a blessing, which is, again, probably shocking for, Ni- or for Ruth to hear, and he acknowledges all that she has done, that Ruth is a woman of noble character, that she did not pursue other men, which one might have assumed, whether in, in good ways or in bad ways, right? Again, she's desperate. She's a foreigner, and she is a widow. You would understand that she might do anything she could, whether right or wrong, for her own survival, but she doesn't do these things. And better than yet, Boaz, what does he say? He wants to do... What she asked, right? So this is good news. This is worth celebrating. But there's a problem. There's a problem that he is not the closest family relative around. In other words, he doesn't get to have the first say about how this is going to go down. They have to allow this other redeemer to decide what he might want to do. And so with that being said, he invites her to stay. Again, even in the Hebrew, there's no sexual connotation being written here. He invites her to stay, likely so that she does not have to wander home in the middle of the night where it would not have been safe. So she stays there in the middle of the night, and we're left to wonder, hey, what is going to happen? Now, you can imagine here, again, if we're just putting ourselves in this situation, that neither one of them is getting much sleep, right? I mean, Ruth had no idea, was probably super anxious, and then things go well, But yet she finds out that Boaz might not even be the one that she gets to marry. But regardless, she is guaranteed that something is going to happen to her, that she is going to get some sort of care and protection. And so she probably didn't sleep. Uh, Boaz probably didn't sleep because, again, we don't exactly know what all that's going on here. But clearly he has this desire to want to marry her. Like he says, yes, he doesn't have to, but he might not even get the chance to. And so he's probably like, Yes, but no, but I don't know what's going to happen. And so they probably, neither neither one of them get any sleep here. And yet in spite of that, I think what we see happening here is a great picture of the gospel. The gospel that Jesus does for us, what we do not deserve, and his perfect life and death and his burial and his resurrection gives us grace and hope and redemption, not because of anything we do, because of what he has done. We have a God who is under no obligation to redeem us, yet willingly and gladly does so to all who would ask of him, gladly, excitedly does so, not because you've earned it, because God, his grace, gladly gave his life for you. It's a reminder of what Paul writes in Romans chapter 3. It'll be on the screen, verse 23 and 24. Paul says this, For all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They, those who are in Christ, are justified freely by his grace through redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul here is writing to a Jewish audience who is saying, that's great what Christ has done, but we're God's chosen people. And Paul's saying, no, 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 it's not about your efforts and about your work. It's about what Christ has done for you. And so no matter what you have walked in here with or what you are going through, one of the things that you and I need to remember this morning is this, that redemption is available to you. Not just to someone else, not just to the good people, not just to the people who got straight A's and got good jobs and have made really good decisions, but available to you. Not through, again, you trying really hard and you white-knuckling it and you promising God you're going to do X, Y, and Z as long as he shows you favor, but by simply acknowledging your need for him and his grace in your life. Redemption is available for you, again, not in some distant future, but today, but today. It's available to you. And so... Let's continue the story, Ruth chapter 3. Here's what it says next, picking up in verse 14. i got to pick up the pace here just a little bit. It says this. So she lay down, again, after he hears the news, she hears the news. So she lay down at his feet until morning, but got up while it was still dark. Then Boaz said, don't let it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. And he told Ruth, bring the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. And when she held it out, he shoveled six measures of barley into the shawl, and she went into the town. 
Right? And so when morning comes, uh, Boaz talks to Ruth and tells her to hold out her garment. He gives her and, uh, you know, through extension, Naomi, even more grain, even more care. But Boaz wants to keep this encounter between them, right? Likely, because again, how these things typically went down, uh, this would tarnish both of their reputations if this got out, because people would assume certain things would have happened here that didn't actually happen. And so she goes, she wakes up, she's going to go back to Naomi and tell her everything that happened. And as we're going to see later, Boaz is going to go into town to try to find this other family redeemer and to see what is going to happen. And so then it says this in verse 16. So she, talking about Ruth here, went to her mother-in-law, Naomi, who asked her, what happened, my daughter? Now, again, if we're putting ourselves in this situation, Naomi also didn't get any sleep last night. She doesn't know what's going to happen. She wants good for Ruth, but she has no idea. Now, I know this is stereotypical, but I've seen how this works. Like, oftentimes, like women, when you go on a date with a guy, right, what happens? You got to go to the bathroom, right? What do you got to do in the bathroom? You got to text your girlfriends. How's it going? Do I need to come pick you up? You know, what is he wearing? How's the conversation going? Well, there ain't no bathroom texting happening here. Naomi all night is like, what is going on? Ain't nobody going to tell her. And so she's really anxious. She's really nervous. What happened? And literally, when it says, what happened, my daughter, literally in the Hebrew, what Naomi is saying to her is, who are you, my daughter? In other words, she's not just asking uh, Ruth what happened, but she's asking Ruth, are you Boaz's? In other words, like, did he accept you? Who are you or whose are you, my daughter? What happened to her request? And so the second half of verse 16, then it says this. Then Ruth told her everything the man had done for her. She said, he gave me six measures of barley because he said, do not go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Now, interestingly here, the narrator adds an important detail that he doesn't tell us about during Naomi or Ruth and Boaz's initial meeting. And what is it? That he doesn't want Ruth to go back empty-handed. Handed. Now, why is it significant for Naomi to hear these words? Well, if you remember the end of Ruth chapter 1, what does Ruth say, or Naomi say to all of her, to her friends and her family who greet her when she returns to Bethlehem? She says, I went away full, but the Lord brought me back empty. That's what she said. And now what is God, the narrator, telling Naomi through Ruth and through us to read the story? The message the narrator is giving Naomi here is not just that Ruth is coming back with food, but that Naomi would know that God had seen her and she is not empty. Contrary to what she thought, she is not alone. In other words, I think it's a reminder for us that when God seems far from us, he may be working on his greatest display for love, of his love for us. There are times when God seems so far, and we're wondering why things are happening and why God is allowing things to happen. And, and if I were being honest, we might have given up. But what we see throughout Scripture, what we see here, is that God, while he seems far, is working on his greatest display of love for Ruth and Naomi. That she thought she was empty, that she assumed she knew how this was going to end for her and for, Ni for Ruth, but she had no idea. She had no idea what God was doing, that God's love was being worked out and being displayed in ways that are going to blow her away, not just in chapter 3, but as we'll see next week in chapter 4 as well. And so with that, here's how, here's how Naomi responds to this good news. Verse 18, the last verse we'll read in Ruth today, it says this. Naomi said, my daughter, wait until you find out how things go, for he won't rest unless he resolves this today. Now, significantly, this is the last time in the book of Ruth that we hear Ruth and Naomi speaking. 
and we are encouraged, right? We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know who Ruth is multiply going to be redeemed by or to end up with. Uh, and not even Boaz is in control here, but things are in the hands of the Lord, and so they wait, and we wait. And there might be things that are going on in your life today that you are having to wait for. And I, and I love this. It reminds me of a verse in Psalm 27, verse 14, where it says this, and it'll be on the screen as well. It says this. The psalmist writes this, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart be courageous. Wait for the Lord. So just like Ruth and Naomi are having to wait, I think there are many of us here today that might be having something that you are having to wait for. Now, to be clear here, wait does not mean don't do anything. It doesn't mean just sit around and wonder, but it does mean that we have to trust. Uh, it does mean that we don't try to manipulate our situations for our own ends. Uh, it does mean that we go before the Lord and we pray and we fast and we ask our community and we, and we be faithful. But it means we ultimately wait for his guidance and his deliverance and his protection uh, and his discernment and not try to do things the way we want to do them. In fact, as we end Ruth here today, or as we end this morning, here's what I want us to leave with. As we leave with good news, but we don't know how it's going to end, we need to remember this truth that faithfulness is revealed in how we wait. Faithfulness to God is revealed in how we wait. If you are a follower of Jesus here this morning, the question is, what are you dealing with in your life that you're having to wait for? And if you were to ask yourself, am I waiting faithfully? Now, there's a lot of unfaithful ways to wait, to try to manipulate situations and circumstances and conversations and people to get what you want. That's an unfaithful way to wait. Uh, you could have just given up and assume that God's not going to do anything about it, and so you no longer pray, you no longer care, you no longer think of it. That could be an unfaithful way to wait, but our faithfulness is revealed in how we wait. Now, I want to be clear here. I'm not saying that Boaz is like God in this example, and that we have to do really good things in order for God to respond positively, right? So Boaz is a man of noble character, but it is clear that part of his positive uh, actions towards Ruth throughout this book are in response, at least partly, because of how Ruth is a woman of noble character as well, that she deserves it. But we do see, that God, that we do see God's picture of his willingness to redeem even what people would consider the undeserved, Right, an ancient Israelite, wrongly, of course, would, would assume that a Moabite doesn't deserve God or doesn't deserve Yahweh's grace and forgiveness. But yet he is faithful to her. And just like he is faithful to us, that God cares, that he has not left us, that he has not left us on our own, and that, that you and I may be, being, may be in the extremely difficult and hard situations here. But faithfulness to God is revealed in how we wait. Are we going to trust him? Or are we going to lean on our own desires and passions to try to get what we want when, if we're being honest, oftentimes what we want is not even what God wants for us because God wants something better that we so often miss out on because we're so focused on trying to get what we want in the time frame that we want it. Faithfulness is revealed in how we wait.